sitting down with one of my favorite guys, Kevin Strauss, joining us today. And I don't want to insult you because you're a great you were a great sports information director back in your day. But you first came to my attention being the the best press box manager I ever saw. Why is Kevin the press box man best press box manager I ever saw? Because he was the first one I ever saw to enforce the no cheering in the press box rule. And from what I understand, Kevin, even though we've not worked together for a few years, that's that's something you stand behind. If you were to ever run for office, you would be a strong no cheering in the press box candidate. Am I wrong? Well, that's definitely one of the platforms. Because and uh, I want to tell you a story. I went to Philadelphia over the summer uh, last summer and took a tour of Citizens Bank ballpark and. We went up to the press box and and being who I am, the first question I asked the guy is, how often do you need to kick somebody out of here for cheering? He said, you know, it's only maybe one or two times. And I said, then then you're not doing it right. Uh, You know, that's something that I stand by. (laughs) Um, uh, Kevin is a CSUN. Not only did he work at CSUN, but he's a CSUN alum. And I know you were following the basketball teams this year. You actually did a couple of the games for the women's team. But Mm -hmm. um not having the tournament kind of hurt a little bit because I definitely thought the men's team was poised to make a run. They've been playing really well down the stretch. You know, Lamine Janae, uh, um, Terrell Gomez, Elijah Harkless, Darius Brown, all the rest. Don't want to leave out Jared Perry, the great Jared Perry, uh, Festus on Demania, big youth, of course, you know, and all those guys did such a tremendous job down the stretch. How disappointing was it for you? You were in school. The last time the Matadors danced. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll, well, I'll start with talking about this year's team and, and you know, that disappointment of not seeing it uh, come to a, a conclusion. You know, when the season was called, we, we saw that the women had been eliminated from the tournament and they had had a rough second half of the year. But the men seemed to be polar opposites. As Lamine Janae, as you mentioned, he, he didn't get started uh, this season until the new year or after the first semester was over. So he was just starting to hit his stride and get into that mid-season form at the end of the year. You could see those guys putting up 20, 30 points a game, multiple players and multiple weapons. And going into the tournament as a two-seed, correct me if I'm wrong, the highest they had had been in 10 years or so. uh, Since since since, 08, yeah. Since since 09, 09, they were the number one. Yeah, yeah, so uh, so 2008 and 2009 when I was there, I I believe they had back-to-back Maybe they weren't the one seed, but they they had a, a triumvirate champion in 2008, and they ended up as the two seed on tiebreaker and lost in the, the semifinal round. That next year won the regular season and went in as a one seed and beat Pacific in overtime. And I was at that game at the convention center down in Anaheim. And that was a, an experience that, that you don't get again, especially at a mid-major for a team that's only been to the tournament now twice and waiting every year and, and coming along a team like this one that has – multiple pieces and, and we've seen good teams over the years between then from 2009 to to this year you know guys like josh green and and how close they got in 2014 with not really having a good year and not really having uh, multiple weapons to be able to put it together as a team uh you know and leaders like aaron parks going out there and doing what he did but not having the, those supporting pieces that that needed to be in place and this 2019 2020 team looked a lot like 2009 with Tremaine Townsend and Dion Tresvant and and those guys where you have a big that that can spread the floor you've got guys who can shoot the three you've got players that can run the offense and and they were the ones who you know we saw in the last regular season game and and the the week going into the tournament winning at Irvine beating Hawaii to get the two seed and and running that momentum Uh, it's just disappointing that they didn't get to to see that through. 
you know, I've talked to people about it, uh, and it wasn't so much. I mean, obviously the Irvine win was impressive, and the Hawaii win was pretty good too. Um, to me, it was how they won those games. You know, how they won those games as opposed to just the fact that they won those games. Because those were games earlier in the season, and maybe last year, that team doesn't win. So yeah. that's what showed me the growth. I mean, they went up big on Irvine, then Irvine caught him at the half, and then Irvine got an eight-point lead in the second half, and then Coach Godfrey reaches into his back pocket, puts Lamine Genet at point guard, inverts everything, and then all of a sudden they 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 were the they were the aggressor down the stretch. They kind of had Irvine on their heels a little bit, which I'd never seen in the last at least five or six years, you know, especially how well that team plays defense. And then with Hawaii, Hawaii played about as well as they could. They're coming off a win on Thursday at Davis. They're the second of a back-to-back. They've not been good in those situations, you know, the last two seasons with some of the injuries and the defections they've had. But, man, they shot the ball really well. They played really good on defense, and yet the Matadors were able to be the better team. And you mentioned Lamine Genet. Um, he was back-to-back, you know, player of the week the last two. You know, and he, that's what he did last year. His last six games – you know, he was 25 and 10 his freshman year. I think the last six games he was 28 and 13, and it was very similar this year. As good as his numbers were, they were better down the stretch. I'll take issue with you on 2014. Now, Josh Green was great. Don't get me wrong, but Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Hicks were pretty yeah, darn good too. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And and I was with them. Uh, I want to say the year after that as the sports formation director on the the day to day. I was t- talking more of. You know, those guys kind of grew into themselves that year and, and finishing out their their junior and senior years. That 2013-14 that team was their emergence. Uh, but overall, the team that year, uh, what do they have to do when, you know, to, to even get to the championship, they had to beat two teams that were ahead of them in the standings. Um, they did it, you know, credit to them. And that's, that's what Cal Poly had to do to win the tournament that year. Uh, you know, it just kind of ran into a, another team that was also hot uh, in the championship game. All right, let's go to uh, our mutual uh, our mutual love. I'll, I'll, I'll set it up for a little bit. So, okay, we're talking about the New York Jets, by the way. Um, and, and I want to I really think anything hinky's going on. Um, so I came on board with the Jets as a kid, and it was a little different for me because you're a more traditional Jet fan in the sense that you're a Jets Mets guy, you know. And I mean, if people don't know you're a California kid, but born in New Jersey, you know, family's from New Jersey. For me. In the 80s was very weird because in the 80s, remember, the, the Mets were the team. You know, they won the series yeah. in 86. That was the team. And so and the Giants were the team because the Giants won the, won the Super Bowl that, that year. I think in October of that year, the Mets won the World Series in October of 86. And then in January, the Giants won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So I, of course, was on the other side of that equation because I was a Yankees guy and a Jets guy, which a lot of, you know, like there are a lot of guys, you know, who are, you know, in that age group who are, who are both Yankees and Jets guys. Anyway, so um, with all the heartbreak over the last 30 some years that I have had with the Jets, I've reconciled it with the fact that this is my penance for being a Yankees fan. You know, the Yankees won a lot in the 90s and there needs to be a great counterbalance to that. And my counterbalance to that is the Jets. You know, I've seen the Devils win the cup. I've seen, I haven't seen the Nets win a final, but I've seen them in the finals twice. Mm-hmm. Seen the Yankees obviously win numerous World Series. The Jets, man, that's the that's the lady that you you know that keeps breaking your heart, but you keep going back. It's tough, man. Like like you're you're talking about the New Jersey Nets and making it to the finals. For some reason, my family is a family of Celtics fans, and you know you talk about the Celtics being the all-time winningest uh, franchise in terms of finals. 
I've only seen them make it to the finals a couple of times, win the finals once in 2008. So I, I have no, you know, I, I grew up watching Anton Walker and Tony Batie and Vitaly Potapenko. So I, I have no idea about the Celtics winning multiple championships. Uh, well, at least the so color got, scheme is right. Well, yeah, that's that's the one thing that's been good. But, you know, I'm, I've been dealing with one championship for the Celtics in 30 years. Uh, you know, the Mets says being the Mets, the Jets is who they are. Uh, you know, the Devils are the winningest team that I follow, and, and they haven't um, won a cup since 03. So it's been a rough stretch. All right, let's dial it back to last season. Okay, and I'll give you my assessment, and then you give me your assessment. So seven and nine, which is a bit of a surprise. They start, I think they started one and six. And I was not a fan of Adam Gase, but I was also wasn't a fan of Mike McCagnin. So when that whole power struggle happened... Um, I, you know, he, Adam, uh, Mike McCadden lost a power struggle to Adam Gase. And I tweeted, I think at the times, like, that's like losing a power struggle to AJ Soprano. You know, how do you lose a, either this guy who was in Miami for three years, never really got them over the hump, put all his, his eggs in the Ryan Tannehill basket. It didn't work out for him. And he came now to be fair. Uh, I felt he was really overmatched. There were some decisions he made early on that were overmatched. Um, to be fair, he didn't have his quarterback. For four of the first, I think, five or six games, you know, the mono thing with Sam Darnold, they, they were injured a lot. And then when they were healthy, uh, they did, you know, I think won six of their last nine. Now, the other side of that, though, is if he can beat two teams that at the time he played them were winless, uh, the Bengals and the Dolphins, who were both winless when the Jets lost to them, this team is in the playoffs. So you can look at it as half full. You can look at it as half empty. I think, and I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you after I have to give... For his first year, I'll reluctantly I'll give Aaron Gase a, a very confident, healthy C plus for his first year as head coach of the Jets. I, I would say it was fine. You know, I, the decision to bring him in and to go after him at, at the outset, talking about how he's this magic quarterback whisperer. For who? Uh, when? What? Somebody proved that to me that that he's this magic guy with with young quarterbacks and developing though you mentioned ryan Tannehill is really not a franchise guy in terms of the success that you would see from a franchise quarterback um so we came in they started off slow i mean i'm not really a darnold fan to begin with i don't i don't see it in him you know and maybe it's just because he hasn't been healthy consistently and had pieces around him because that's what you need to be successful in the league and, and that's more on the general manager than really Gase to, to put pieces around him. But I just think it, it was fine. You know, seven and nine is seven and nine. It's a middle of the road draft pick. So they're always going to be mediocre until they're either terrible and get, uh, you know, a franchise changing talent at the top, which they think Darnold is, or they, you know, actually put it together and beat winless teams. But it's the Jets being the Jets when you can't beat two teams who come in with zero wins and you lose to them. So it's nothing new. So I, I'm going to disagree with you on Darnold because I do think Darnold – I think Darnold – is he Peyton Manning? No. He's not Peyton Manning. Could he be Cam Newton or Beth, Ben Roethlisberger? Yes. I think he could be one of those two guys. Both of them got to Super Bowls. Roethlisberger obviously has won a Super Bowl uh, with the Jets. Um, and I agree with you. You made a great point. It, it, I, I do think Gase takes, he needs to take some responsibility. That was one of the things I, I didn't like about him in that you're in New York, okay? The guys that succeed in New York are the guys that say, hey, this is, you know, the buck stops here. 
you know, talking about Par- Parcells or a Tory or somebody like that. It's, you know, uh, Lou Lamarillo, uh, you know, Jacques Lemaire, people like that. You know, the buck stops with me. And, 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 and it seemed for a lot of the year that Gase was trying to to uh, deflect a lot of the, the, the shortcomings, which, you know, were fair. He didn't have a starting quarterback. And then his backup quarterback, it's, you know, loses uh, is, is lost for the year. And then you got Luke Falk, you know, starting, you know, a, a undrafted free agent starting games in the NFL, which, as you and I know, that's not going to turn out well a whole lot of the time. But the point you made that I like is this is about the GM. So Joe Douglas is the guy who came from Baltimore, uh, the Eagles, you know, he's a Baltimore guy, came, was with the Philadelphia Eagles, both teams that had won Super Bowls while he was there. And my issue really with the last few years, I, I didn't think Todd Bowles did a bad job. I think Todd Bowles was in a bad situation because he invested or he he was he was lined up with Mike McCagden, who I thought did not do a good job. McCagden, Jersey guy, said all the right things, but some of his decisions were just mind-boggling because all his draft picks that didn't pan out. A lot of them aren't even with the team anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think this team has had a guy, a coach, who's understood how the draft works since Mangini. I mean, you look back to Mangini, the players they bought in, even after he was gone in 09 and, and, and 2010, Rex Ryan took that core and they went to the AFC Championship two years in a row. Um, the thing that baffled me about McGinn, and we'll get to it in terms of what the Jets need to do next year is, mm-hmm. He, I think in five or four or five drafts, he had 28 total picks off the top of my head, or maybe it might have been 29. He drafted two offensive linemen, and neither of them came before the fourth or fifth round. And not that you can't find gems in the fourth or fifth round, because you absolutely can, but that would seem to be the focus of what you need to do, in, especially playing in the AFC East, where there's cold weather and whatnot. And the second other thing is, you mentioned the supporting cast, and you, that that's true to a degree. But you have Le'Veon Bell, and you don't really give him anything to do till later in the season when kind of everything's decided. Now, to be fair, early in the season, they didn't have Darnold. So the teams would line up against Le'Veon Bell. But I got this weird vibe off a of Gase that he didn't really want Le'Veon Bell. But luckily now, Joe Douglas said, no, 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 we're invested in Le'Veon Bell. We know what he is. And he might have been hurt last year. Remember, Kevin, he didn't play the year yeah. before, so maybe he was rusty. But I'm interested what what your take was on, on all that stuff. You you brought up Douglas yourself, so yeah. So so a, a few pieces, and this may be where you're going with it. Uh, you know, when you're talking about the supporting cast and, and to expand on that, looking back to when the team went to back to back AFC Championship games with Mark Sanchez, who is is he still in the league or is he still bouncing around? I don't know, but he's not he's not leading a team anywhere. He was not a world beater quarterback. He had an all pro line around him and he had a running back who could uh, who he could use in the offense. So you see that formula that works talking about you need to have offensive linemen who are going to protect your quarterback just to give him a few extra seconds to get rid of the ball. They had nothing like that last year. Douglas is starting to make some of those moves in the free agency of of get some guys who are going to be upgrades on the line. But it's going to take getting, you know, a couple of guys that are really they, they don't have Nick Mangold anymore. They don't have Alan Fanica. They don't have Kevin Malai. But do they have some pieces that can really hold up and and give them the protection that they need so that Darnold does have a few uh, extra seconds or split seconds to, to get the ball? If they're going to need some uh, to get a receiver, in my opinion. Um, with Le'Veon Bell there, that's great. And he's, he's a good receiving running back, so that opens up the offense. But there's still some work to do in the draft. And and free agency if they can and I, i'm 
heartened by the fact that they're starting to move on the offensive line to to get some pieces for Darnold where he doesn't need to be a Peyton Manning to win some games, but they do need to get uh, some pieces around him. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to do anything. All right, I'll toss this one to you. Richie Anderson, who I thought the Jets had really done a nice job developing. He had some personal issues, off-the-field issues when he was younger, but the last couple of years, him and Darnold seemed to be developing chemistry. He seemed to understand what he needed to do. He was really active in the community, and then all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. So he leaves for Carolina. Um, I think it was $12 million guaranteed, which really did it. Now, there were reports out that the Jets offered him $40 million for four years. I don't know how much of that was guaranteed, to be fair, and that he ha- left more money on the table with the Jets to go be with Carolina, to go play with Carolina. Um, I'm wondering if Teddy Bridgewater, who was with the Jets for a little bit, uh, might have recruited him to Carolina. Now Teddy's over there with, with the Panthers. Um, is, is this significant loss for the Jets not having Richie Anderson, who really, you know, as you know, it's not enough in the NFL to just have wide receivers. You really need to develop them in the context of your offense, which I think the Jets finally done. That was one of the bright spots I thought last year was the fact that he and Darnold developed a little bit of chemistry. Well, I think, you know, and, and no knock to Anderson, I don't, I didn't see him as a number one target receiver. Uh, and maybe I'm selling him short because I've been watching the Jets for 30 years, but he has been developing. They, they could have definitely used him in his, uh, his leadership on the team. And, you know, maybe like you said, that's Bridgewater going to Carolina and maybe it's the, the coach from Baylor going over and the success and just a change of scenery of the same old stuff going on with the Jets, the same old fight between the coaching staff and, and management and what are they going to do to even get him the ball? Are they going to be healthy? Are they going to have peace? Are they going to win any games? Uh, you know, maybe he sees a, a brighter spot in Carolina and a chance to not play in, you know, a, a New York winter, um, you know, but I, I'm not going to hate him for it, especially if, if it's comparable situation or if he's getting a little bit more money to go play there. It's, yeah, that's that's his decision. He's earned the right to make that. I, I'll be disappointed to see him go. Uh, I just hope that they can uh, bring in somebody who can fill that role or at least have somebody because because right now the rest of the receiving core is not up to the same level as Anderson. And and like I said, I, I wouldn't have seen Anderson as a, a, a number one receiver anyway. Uh, uh, you know, if he's going to I really guess it depends on what, what team he's for. But in Carolina, he can be that guy. Um, so Crawford back, I thought Crawford had a decent year for the Jets last year. And then Anunwa is supposedly healthy again. He's back and they just signed, they just signed Perriman from, uh, from Tampa Bay who, you know, played in a, in a similar, he played in Bruce Arians offense, which is going to be similar, uh, to what, you know, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but I know some of the concepts in, in the, in the gay seem are pretty similar to what Arians does uh, in terms of the, the passing game. Um, so you bought this up and, and I, I, Reading between the tea leaves, I'm guessing that one of the first two Jets draft picks will be a wide receiver. I, I'm not a huge guy with drafting wide receivers early, simply because the Jets have been burned a lot by the, by those picks. And the, the wide receivers that have been successful for them tend to be, you know, Jericho Cotri, who was a fourth-round pick who they were developing, you know. Like Richie Anderson wasn't a uh, – uh, uh, wasn't a – did I say Richie? Yeah, he wasn't a first-round pick, you know. Um, but – it looks like they're leading in that direction. They have a good core of receivers. I thought the tight end position actually improved for them uh, with with Ridley and whatnot last year. They really actually got some production out of the tight end situation despite some injuries, and there was a suspension as well. Um, so I'm guessing 
They're going to draft a wide receiver in the first or second round. It seems like that's what you you would like to see them do. I, I would like to see them do that. And, you know, I don't think it needs to be a first round guy. I, to be honest with you, I haven't watched college football since I was a kid. And that's a product of working college sports for the last few years is that Saturdays in the fall are not really uh-huh. open. So I, I don't know too much about the, the receivers that are available in the draft. You know, looking at different mock drafts, it seems to be mid-round where the Jets are anyway. Um, so if there's not a guy that's a Keyshawn Johnson that they need to trade up for, then they probably can wait to their uh, second round or, or further to, to get who they need. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like that's one place that they need to address. All right. Uh First four rounds, you, you hope to find starters, one through four, and then five through seven, it's more about special teams and depth or development guys. Um, what would you like to see the Jets do in rounds one through four? Do you have any ideas as to what areas, without mentioning exact players, what areas you think they should address? Well, uh, you know, top of the top of the list for me, I mentioned it already, talking about the wide receiver. I think that depending on the offensive line, and, and I got to look at it more, to see if there are other needs there or some, you know, if there's a guy that, that you can't miss that, that you need to get in in the first or second round for the offensive line, that's huge. Each one of those positions on the line is is something that the Jets need to to look at. Um, you know, defensive line has always been one that they go for and uh, linebacker. I don't know uh, that they need to, to spend their draft picks in the same way that they always do. Uh, but I feel like there are some defensive backs out there, and there, you know, there seems to be a need for the Jets that they really haven't found that cornerback, that safety that that is going to be the defensive leader on their team. And they've had some some good years with defensive picks, but then they've also had the guys that stick around for a year or two fall out of favor with the team, and then they go somewhere else. So that's really a crapshoot, in my opinion. But I think that first and foremost, you're you're looking at offensive line and receiver, and then after that, maybe you go on the D line and, and look for a back. Well, that's exactly what I, what I was what I was going to say. I, I think the the needs, and I I I will I, I don't think wide receivers is pressing a need uh, maybe as some other people think. I mean, I do think they need to upgrade the wide receivers. Don't get me wrong, but I would go if I had to rank one through four. My, my priority would be offensive line. It would be cornerback then it would be wide receiver and then pass rusher. Now, here's the thing is with this draft, it seems like in the top 50 picks, according to what I've read, and again, I'm like you. I mean, I watch UCLA and I, you know, I'll watch some late night, you know, Matt and West, because our guy, John Ramey, you know, if, it, if I get back from a game on Saturday, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, uh, but it seems that in the first two rounds, if you read it, wide receiver is a pretty strong position this year. Offensive line is a pretty strong position this year, and pass rushers are a pretty uh, strong position. So that, that helps the Jets in the sense those are three areas of need for them. And kind of the way it's weird, I don't know. They've mismanaged a little bit, I think, the defensive line. Um, and, you know, Quinnen Williams, I think, just got – you know, he, he was had, had, had a gun in his luggage. So I don't know what that's going to mean uh, going into the season. But as far as the good stuff, uh, I do think the safety position is pretty strong. You know, with Jamal Adams, with May – they signed Marquis Christian in the offseason to give some depth and play little special teams. So I'm okay with the safety position. I actually think the linebacker position is okay. I mean, if they can, you know, if somebody falls into their lap at 11, if, you know, if they have a first round grade on a guy and he falls into lap, I wouldn't be averse to them picking a linebacker. But they bought in, you know, James Burgess, who's going to be more of a special teams depth guy. They re signed Jordan Jenkins, who I think over overestimated his market. Um, 
they got uh, Patrick Onwasor, who's going to, you know, all these inside linebackers. I don't know what what Greg Williams has got in tap to, to sign. He's an old, like, you come from the Baltimore system, so they like him. Um, they re-signed Neville Hewitt, which I thought was a great move because here's a guy who came in. Nobody knew if he was any good or not, and then Mosley goes down, and we're like, whoa, this guy, this guy can actually play a little bit. So, um, you know, obviously, if you can get a top-caliber linebacker, you always take him. But I, I'm okay kind of with the way the Jets have managed that linebacking core. So those are two areas in terms of safety and linebacker that I think are pretty good. And, you know, playing in, in, in the AFC, you need cornerbacks. And that was, I think, you know, when you have two really good safeties, if you don't have good corners, it almost negates the fact that you have a pro ball safety like Jamal Adams out there. And that, I think, was a real weakness. So we won't have to worry about Tremaine Johnson anymore, Kevin. So you can wow. smile about that. Um they bought in uh, Arthur Moale is going to come in, and then they've signed uh, they signed a guy Pierre Desir from the Colts. It's probably going to be penciled into one of those starting positions. I'd love to see them get a cornerback, maybe maybe not in the first round, but a second and third round guy you can pencil in as a starter on that other on that other side. Yep, sounds good. The days of uh, of Darrell Revis are well behind us. Okay. Offensive line. Let's do a little itinerary on the offensive line. Um, they bought in Connor McGovern from Denver. He's probably a starter for them. They bought in Greg Van Roten from uh, Charlotte, who's a Long Island kid, apparently. He grew up a Jets fan. And uh, I was looking at the Carolina boards, and they were all calling him Greg Van Rotten. So I don't think they're they're too sad that he's, that he's going to go. But he's going to be one starting guard. So here's the intriguing thing for me is they bought in Fonte. Mm-hmm. who they ostensibly have penciled in at left tackle. But I think this gives them some flexibility because if you can get a stud alignment on the first round at the 11th pick or maybe in the second round, you can still – he's versatile enough or you can flip him to the right tackle and he can play on both sides of the offensive line. And those are the guys who I think they're going to come in for starters. They signed Josh Andrews earlier in, in the offseason – I think he's more of a depth guy who can play a couple different positions because they lost a couple of their their you know their their backup offensive linemen got signed to other teams. So that's why I think they're pretty in line to draft a lineman in the first or second round of the offensive side. Um, but here's the question I'll pose to you. As you know, in the AFC East, even though Tom Brady is gone, one voyage, Tomaso, he's going down to Tampa Bay, you need to be able to rush the passer. So uh, last year, they were pretty good at rushing the passer. I mean, Greg Williams drew up all kinds of blitzes. I do think that hurt them in terms of their pass coverage and because they were a lot of one-on-one coverage. Would love to see them just get that stud pass rusher. You know, Khalil Mack obviously comes to mind. He can't, they don't grow on trees. Just somebody who can wreak some havoc and help the defense out. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the reasons that – well. Obviously, Tom Brady is a, a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback, so that's one reason that the Jets can't beat the, the Patriots in, in past years. But you also look at the style of play and having a matchup against Buffalo and and Miami, and and that you know rushing the outside and trying to get to the passer. Well, Tom had you know five six different weapons where he could just dump it off on slants or or out in the flat, and you know they had receiving running backs and and fullbacks and tight ends and it really didn't matter where you were coming from. Somebody was going to be there to catch the ball. So we'll see how that changes for new England at least, but the jets need to be set up a certain way. Like you said, having a pass rusher to, to really make something uh, from their defense against the other teams. And we'll see if the having Tom Brady out in New England really does 
change that offensive mindset for Belichick or or if they're going to still run that same system that the Jets are going to have to adapt to twice a year. I'm going to ask you a philosophy question because um, the Jets for a long time didn't have running backs that could catch the football, like back in the mid-90s and stuff. Then Parcells comes in, and then all of a sudden you have Keith Byers, you have Adrian Morrell, you have uh, Curtis Martin, uh, uh, Richie Anderson. You have a bunch of guys who can catch the ball out of the backfield. And they've had them for a while, but but the last 10 years they really haven't had that guy. Um, And now all of a sudden you have Le'Veon Bell, who can catch footballs out of the backfield. You have... um, uh, a Bilal Powell too is a, I think is a great change of pace guy who can give him a little bit of a breather. Um, and they draft another the, the kid they drafted last year is pretty good and, and a fullback even too who catch some balls out of the backfield. So what I'm wondering is um, that when they were playing well, they seem to be able to hit the running backs out of the backfield. Now I know you know we've talked about wide receiver being a need. How much you think with Darnold, especially if he has better offensive line? How much of a factor is those running backs? You mentioned New England; they've made a they've made a, a, a you know they've made a dynasty out of it, out of having running backs and catch the ball out of the backfield. Yeah, well, not not just running backs for them, but when they brought in the, the dual tight end system with Gronkowski and Hernandez, and both of them could go deep and and both of them could block and catch and and really spread the field out, that that changed the game over the last decade. Uh, so having the running back that can catch the ball, the thing that that makes me hesitant about Darnold is that. Too often, and and you know maybe I'm hypercritical of him, but too often he's not picked up his running backs. He's not seen that. He's not seen where the where the blitz is coming from, or to know where they're going to be. So either overthrows it, throws it into double coverage, not picking up the the right receiver route. Uh, so it, to me, it's that mental side of the game for him where he seems to get a little bit rushed, and then that's where you need to to be able to have an extra split second from the offensive line so you can see that you're running back is there to dump it off to and to, to advance the ball or, or to get it out on the swing route. And I don't know that he's got that yet. And and that's something that, that has disappointed me in him is that, yeah, he can throw the ball. He, he, when he's on, he's on. It's just those times where he seems to rush it a little bit and doesn't trust himself and makes poor decisions that that's where they're going to get in trouble. And he, too often he's throwing interceptions or he's, he's not, uh, you know, what, Sorry, I'm kind of rambling all over the place, but, but one thing that, that has kept Tom Brady in the league as long as it has and has kept him on top of the game for so long is that he knows when to go down, when to take a sack and to, to recover and, and reset the offense and learn from that situation for the next play. He'll just go to ground and not get hit, whereas I feel like Darnold rushes himself and just tries to throw the ball away rather than take three-yard loss. And then he throws it into coverage and it gets picked. So it's it's that that maturity is not there. Obviously, he's only been around a couple of years, but that's something that that they are having that ability with receivers or running backs who can who can receive as well will help him because they'll have more options to throw it to. You know, that's a, you make a you make a fair point. To me, that is more the product of him when he was at USC. Four out of five games he played his team significantly had the best talent. You know, they didn't always win, but they generally, if you lined them up, USC generally had the best talent of any team they played, you know, maybe not four, maybe three out of four times, you know, um, you know, over the course of a 12 game schedule, they would probably have the better talent nine out of those 12 games. And that was the problem. That's why, that's why, you know, Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian hit, hit the rocks because they weren't winning those games. And people have said the same about Clay Helton. Um, 
with the Jets, now you're sometimes dealing with, you know, pro talent obviously is going to be comparable from team to team, but you have that scheme or that, that, that little extra wrinkle that other team has that maybe you're not ready for, which I think will come, that's on him as far as experience, and it's also on the coaches a little bit to, you know, that's what good coaches do. That's what Parcells was so good at, you know. He had guys on his team that would play seven snaps in a game and they would make a, you know, they would make an impact on all seven of those snaps, you know. He would have the you know like you're talking about with New England, you know, Belichick is great at that. You know, he'll have that third tight end and the seven snaps that third tight end plays, you know, three of them will go for first downs or four of them will go for first downs. And that's something I think Gase didn't do great uh, last season in terms of maximizing what he had on his roster. But um, all right, let's go away from kind of the nitty gritty. Let's go to Kevin Strauss. Give me, what was your fondest memory as a Jets fan? Oh, I, that's, I mean, I do talk about winning a lot. Like everybody's best memory is watching the team win. But my first, not my first memory, but my first big thing that I can think of is I want to say it was the 96 season. When they went one and fifteen, they had uh, just drafted Keyshawn Johnson that year, and they still only won one game. That one win was in Phoenix at uh, Sun Devil Stadium, and my family went out to that game from uh, from California. So they were what zero and eight, zero and nine at the time. Flew out on a Southwest flight for like thirty five minutes, landed in Phoenix, went to Sun Devil Stadium. It was the one game that they won that year, and more. More fans were Jets fans in the stadium than were Cardinal fans, and uh, they were just screaming about how they needed to to fire Rich Kotite. Ditch Rich was the the chant all game long. The Jets won the game; they didn't win again that year, and uh, that's really the the first thing, first young memory. I was first grade, six, six seven years old, uh, but that was probably the the thing that I can remember the most. And I also remember from that trip something that you'll like. I want to say, and maybe my memories are are uh, blending together from that year, but I want to say that was during the time when the Yankees were beating the Braves in the World Series. And um, I remember that because I was conflicted. I didn't want to root for either of those teams because I'm a Mets fan. So why, why would I want the Braves well, to win? Right. Why, why would I want the Yankees to win? Uh, but I want to say right. that that was about the same time. Uh, well, my, if you, yeah, I'm afraid you bring that up because my memory was my first live jet game I ever went to was the Marino O'Brien duel in 1986 when it was a 51 45 game. The Jets scored to tie the game with no time left on the clock. And then uh, O'Brien hit Wesley Walker for the game winner down the sideline. It was the loudest, most deafening place I've ever been. I still have a ticket stuff from that game laying around somewhere. So, in terms of being a live uh, game, that was my favorite one. And then, so I guess my best memory is. Um, the win with Sanchez, uh, you know, the Bart Scott, you know, can't wait game. And which is weird to say, cause I, you know, I've been following the Jets for a long time. I think I, my first, you know, real year following them was 82, um, as a young kid. But, uh, that game when they went into new England with Mark Sanchez and beat the Patriots to get to the AFC championship game was, was just incredible. Um, and then of course, I, I mean, the biggest heartbreak I was going to ask you, but I'll tell you mine first. Mm-hmm. And there were two. And one was just maybe because it was my first year. I didn't, I hadn't really invested in, in, in my jet, you know, heartbreak yet. It was that it was it, my first year following football was, it was a strike year. It was 82. There was a football strike. So only played like eight or nine games. And then they had a weird, it's not weird now. Cause back then less teams made the playoffs, but each co- conference had an 18 playoff tournament. So the jets 
beat the Raiders to get to the AFC championship against Miami. And, uh, they ended up losing. It was a, it was a game where it was a rainstorm in Miami of all things. And it was all muddy. And, uh, Freeman McNeil, who's a UCLA guy had led the led the AFC in rushing that year. And he couldn't do anything because of the mud. And then AJ Dewey had three interceptions, um, and the Jets lost the game 14 nothing. I was like a little kid. So it was like, you know, like it was one of those things where I didn't want to go to school on Monday after the Jets lost. My mom's yeah. like, no, no, no. Your team losing is not an excuse for you not to go to school. Um, and then, of course, 86, when they were beating Cleveland 20 to 10 with about four minutes to go, and the Browns tied it and won it in overtime to go to the uh, AFC Championship against New England. That would have been the first AFC Championship for the Jets against New England. And that was a heartbreaker. And I remember because I was listening, I had the, the radio call with something like, you know, calling the dogs. We're, we're going to New England because when when McNeil scored to make it 20 to 10, it looked like they were going. Uh, and then, of course, 98 was a heartbreak. But I, by then, I'd been steeled by many years yeah. of Jet disappointment. Um, what was your biggest heartbreak as a Jets fan? I, I was going to mention 98. And I think that that's because that was really the first time growing up that they were good and that they were in it. So and it 98 for you. It was fun to yeah, watch. 98 but, for you. But, yes, but that was, you know, okay, they didn't make it. So that was, that was like the first disappointing. Uh, you know, obviously 2009, 2010 were disappointing, but I had learned to, okay, at least being more involved in the game. They were a good team those years, but they also had like some things fell their way. So it's kind of like, oh, we're happy to be here because we're never here. So I felt a little better about those years. And then, in person, uh, I forget what year it was, maybe five or six years ago now, my wife and I drove down to San Diego and uh, when the Chargers were still there. And we left Sunday morning. We got there for a one o'clock game, maybe 1230. So we, we drove down the morning of the game, parked, got into the game. The Jets lost 35 to zero. We got back in the car and it took us about four hours to come back up to L.A. And that was just like, why did we even spend that oh, much money yeah. to to see this team they weren't good that year anyway but it was one of those well the jets are out here we got to go to the game and no it was it was not a good trip but uh it, you know it's 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 good and bad that they're not local and that you watch them every so often or you know you're intentionally watching them they're not just on tv and disappointing you all the time uh so that's that's a bright side uh, that's a, that's a great story. Yeah. I have not, I went up to the Bay area to watch them beat the Raiders some years ago. And that was fun sitting just above the black hole and rooting for the jets. Uh, what was, it was a fun, I've not seen them in San. I need to go down to San Diego to catch them. Well, I guess I can't anymore because Chargers aren't there anymore. So yep. that's that scratch that off the list. Well, then that um, was one of the, to San Diego. Yeah, no, that was one of the, one of the reasons we went is they had announced that they weren't going back. I mean, it, they were still there another year, oh. I want to say, but San Diego, I mean, Qualcomm's a great place. It's just you can't see anything if you're not spending $300 to go to the game. So the scoreboard is tiny. You can't you can't see really any of the video board. You don't know what the score is, what how much time is left. You're just kind of there. Uh, so that was fine. It was hot and sunny, and they got blown out, and they didn't score at all. So it was just one of those disappointments. But you know, I'd go down to to Carson to see them. It seems a lot more intimate being in a soccer stadium for however long. Uh, I guess they're not going to be there anymore either. But um, maybe we'll check out the new place. 
Um, I will give you one suggestion. If you ever go to San Diego with the wife to catch the Mets, I don't know where you can catch it up by you. I, I'm wondering if they're just about take the take the Surfliner down to San Diego. It is great. Yeah. I, I was, I yeah. I, it's just a great back and forth. It's awesome. Um, I used to go for a, there was a retreat I used to go to, and it would end on Saturday, so I'd spend the night and come back on Sunday. And let me tell you something: taking that Surfliner back on Sunday, like late afternoon, and watching the 405 just be a parking lot is just very, very soothing. I, I'm not not. There's no shot in front. It's just for you. There's a nice feeling that okay, I got to navigate home from Union Station or whatever your station is, yeah. but. I'm going to be able to just chill, relax, eat a sandwich, listen to music, and be all good. Yeah, I was so. going to ask if it was Union Station or not, because, I mean, we could take the Metrolink down there. Otherwise, I think the closest one other than Union Station, if, if they don't have it, is probably Santa Barbara uh, from us. But Well, I, Van Nuys, you can you can catch the Surfliner out of Van Nuys. Uh-huh. Um, it's not, not like the yeah, – Union Station is, you know, whatever, every hour. I think it's every other trip. It stops at the Van Nuys. You should check it out, but I don't know how close that is to you guys. Probably a little oh, further, yeah. but um, no, not too bad. Any final thoughts, Kevin? I mean, um, the Mets aren't going to play for a little bit. Um, who knows if the NFL season starts? What's uh, what are your thoughts going forth? Uh, you know, City of Santa Clarita, by the way, public information officer. It, it hurt me to lose you at uh, at CSUN. It just hurt me to lose you, but I'm glad you you guys are doing well up there. You're enjoying Santa Clarita. Um, Give me the next couple of couple of weeks for the man they call Kevin Strauss, Iron Fist Strauss. Well, hoping that you know everything up here is closed. You know, the city's closed, the, the facilities are closed. So we're hoping that we can get back to work as soon as safe. Uh, you know, we're not rushing it. We're not uh, setting yeah. any deadline. It's just it. Everybody's antsy everywhere. So you know, just get some work done from home, enjoying the time with the wife, being home. Something that I, you know, I really wasn't for the first six years of the marriage because I was gone every week unless it was the summer. So it's nice to be home and take it slow a little bit. And it, it's it's a it's a bit of a change, but you know, they're not going to get this opportunity again. So uh, you know, the plan is to just relax for the next few weeks. Hopefully, baseball will start sometime this summer. Uh, catch a couple games when it does, and you know, if it doesn't, that'll be disappointing. But there's bigger things to worry about. And, you know, it's, I'm sure football will get started because they can always play. And I just, I wait for the Jets to go seven and nine again, miss the playoffs and have a middle of the road draft pick that they waste because that's what they do. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that wants my team to lose to get a high pick. Cause how many high picks have we seen not pan out? You know, well, yeah, like some of the, you're... some of the bets, yeah, some of the bets, Jets picks have been like 10, 11, 12. So I'm, I'm actually, I feel optimistic about that. Well, but when you're when you're finishing the year on a three game win streak, when you maybe you didn't need to, you got nothing to play for, and really, what's the point? You're not trying to lose, but how come you couldn't win earlier in the year? You know, it's just it's disappointing. But no, that's we'll see that's what fair. They do and that's fair. Hopefully, you they beat, can. You beat uh, Cincinnati. You beat the Dolphins. Yeah. I mean, you could have won earlier in the year. You didn't, and now you just start to win when it doesn't matter, and you're already eliminated. So. Hopefully they can at least put together a competitive year. It's one thing if they they finish and miss the playoffs, but they were in the games, and it's another to get blitzed for ten weeks and then start to pick it up after it doesn't matter anymore. Well, how about this? We if we have football in whatever September, that'll be a great thing, regardless of you know if, if the Jets need to go one and fifteen in a year, I'll be okay with it being this, this year for for now. Yep. Maybe in October I won't, but right now. If you're telling me the Jets will go, well, I'll still take it because that means we have a season. 
you know. Sounds um, good. Last thing before I let you go. I know I said last thing, but here's the real last thing. Um, you were – give me your best CSUN memory because you were there, I think, uh, 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 you were a year, year after Bobby V. So you're a Bobby V guy. Bobby V. bought you in. Our, our, our good friend Rob, Robert Vasquez, speaking of San Diego, he's comfortably retired and living a life of leisure down in Chula Vista. Um, Still hasn't visited me, though. You were an intern, then you got hired at CSUN. He hasn't. No, that's not good. Um, ooh, I didn't mean to bring up uh, old tensions, Kevin. I'm sorry. Um, but give me, give me, give me your fo- your fondest. If you only, if you have more than one, that's cool. What's your fondest CSUN memory? Uh, I got a couple of them. So over the years, you know, I, I worked baseball, I worked soccer, I worked basketball. Those were my main assignments when I was there. So I really one for each. I would say, you know, soccer played in the fall so a lot of the time I, I would stay home i didn't really travel with them because it was during basketball season so you know we needed the manpower at home but uh the first road trip that i ever took with the men's soccer team was to uc santa barbara in 2012 and i was i been on the job for two years by then and santa barbara is a huge soccer town it's a uh, soccer heaven is what they call it and big in collegiate soccer and a lot of pros come out of that program so going with the team beating Santa Barbara on the road, going up to UC Davis afterwards, winning the the Big West Conference Championship was a huge moment. I was able to, to broadcast that on the radio. That was a lot of fun. Uh, best memories from baseball is probably just being out with the team, uh, picking up broadcasting because I had never done it before, and I was bored sitting watching the games because there was nothing else to do. You know, While the game is going on, there's really nothing for somebody on the road to be doing. I'm not keeping score. I'm not writing. I'm, not, I'm just sitting and watching. So being able to broadcast that and, and figure out was a great opportunity. And, and you and I got to do a few games of that as well. And uh, we called a no hitter. You and I did one game. It wasn't for the home team or it wasn't for our team. But it, it was, uh, I called two no hitters for baseball, both of them against my team. Uh, so that was interesting and, and unexciting. Uh, probably the best memory individual game uh, for baseball was uh, being at LMU we had just come back from Hawaii for a season. We went to LMU, and it was the first game that Page Stadium had lights, and maybe it was the first time that CSUN had played there with lights. It was the first night game that I'd ever been there. Started at 6 o'clock. I don't remember if you were with me on that broadcast or not. I don't think that was the one that you were there. I think that was a separate one with the no-hitter. But we, we came back. The game started at 6. We played... Maybe 11 innings, 12 innings. It, it was a, a long game. We were there until midnight. We played a six-hour baseball game that was like 15 to 14 or something like that. It was it was ridiculous on a Tuesday night. Nobody needed to be there. It didn't matter for anything. It wasn't a conference game. Why we were there for six hours? Just because we could because they had lights now. And that was probably the most insane game that I've ever broadcast, six hours of, of talking to nobody. Uh, and then for basketball, as a student, it had to be being in the building uh, when when the Matadors beat Pacific. You know, they they had gone out to a 20-point lead in the first half pretty quickly, blew it in the second half, went to overtime, and they were able to to hold off Pacific. And it was at the time Pacific was a big Big West uh, powerhouse, and and they'd won uh, quite a few conference championships. So that was huge to to be able to beat them, go to the tournament, and almost take down Memphis and then uh, being with the team really just just going across the country you know you and I spent a lot of time on the road that year 
went to Louisville, went to Oregon, got to see all these storied uh, basketball arenas across the country, see these crowds, see these student sections come out for their team. That, that was, uh, was something special. Um, I will say our friend Ryan Radley, our mutual friend, uh, he reminded me of a sign that you made. And it, it's it's uh, apt right now because one of the, you know, Rocket Henderson or season, I don't know if you saw, he's in the transfer portal. He's now yeah. playing for Ryder. So just wanted to – Great team. You're, you're, you're Great back team. of the day when you were uh, – you weren't a you, you weren't a Cameron crazy, but you were a uh, you were whatever you call it uh, uh, a Redwood Hall radical or Redwood Hall rowdy. Some, um, something like that. Kevin Strauss, thanks, man. Always great. I miss you. I miss I, I miss working with you, man. I miss working with you. But I'm happy things are going well. And best to Jackie. She the real MVP. And we'll do this again soon. And hopefully the Jets have a season. And we'll talk then. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's.